Part two of A Marriage Made in Heaven. You know, and I, I gave an introduction last week hoping that everyone would hear my heart and hear the heart of the Lord when it comes to this because there's been such attack on marriage for, forever, since the Garden, really, since the Garden of Eden. And all of us are in different places. I realize we have people that have been divorced in here, remarried in here, some divorced and single, some marriages that are under attack even now. I realize all those things. And if I could just give you one word of encouragement as you hear these things, because the devil would love to take what the Word of God says, what I might say from the Word of God, and, and try to create guilt, shame, condemnation in your, in your heart. That is not from God. My, my goal would be that we would hear the Word of God wherever we're at today and take it and go forward and make everything better in our relationships, especially marriage, but for relationships in general. Everything that I'm really talking about in terms of the marriage relationship, which is what my focus is, can really be applied quite well to, to relationships in general, relationships with other people. Um, so I, I hope if you're single and have no idea you want to ever get married, it still works for you. If you're not married yet, you might be. It'll work for you. And those of us that are married, uh, we can do better, I'm sure. And if I sound like I'm picking on the men every now and then, uh, I might be. So just a heads up, man. Last week, we looked in Genesis chapter 2 and discovered God's intention for marriage. We looked at a few things like the need for companionship. When God had created everything, he said, it is good. And then he looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Companionship is something that's put in human beings. First for the Lord, there's a hole that only God can fill, but he knows we need companionship, and there is no more intimate companionship designed by God than a husband and a wife. We know that it was a, the principle of leaving and cleaving we looked at. Leaving, it says, you know, leave your father and your mother and cleave unto your wife. It's a new structuring or restructuring of priority. No relationship other than the relationship that we have individually with God. No other relationship supersedes the relationship between a husband and a wife. Everything else falls below that except our relationship with God. So we need to understand there's a leaving of those things and a cleaving, a hanging on, a bonding to our spouses. And, of course, he gave the mandate to go and fill the earth, to perpetuate the human race, and then part of that that we sometimes miss is he, he talked about ruling and subduing all living creatures. I think my translation says everything that's living that walks upon the earth. I believe that I can read into that a little bit maybe here, so it's maybe more Mike than what the word really says, so I want to give you that as a warning. But I think that ruling over to me, there's an, an idea that family, family, marriage and family was supposed to be the foundation of society. And in our culture today and many other cultures around the world, there is an unbelievable attack on family and marriage, undermining our culture, our society. And we can try to fix it with all these Band-Aids, and while Band-Aids might help, it doesn't usually cure anything. It's going to take a move of the Spirit of God, and it's going to take a lot of effort on the part of Christians, God's people. Because most of the things I'm talking about here are impossible for non-believers to do. There is a a reservoir of love from God, and we'll talk about this today a lot, love, that's available to us as believers that's not available in the same way to non-believers. It's there to be received. He loves the world. He loves all his creation. 
But until we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior and become part of the family of God, there is a difference in the availability of that love for each one of us. And I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to mention it again. You know, the primary reason I believe for marriage, the primary reason, and I tell people in our pre-marriage classes and when I'm counseling couples, I said, if we could get this as the primary focus, the primary goal of our marriage, everything else will work out. And that is to bring glory to God. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, including marriage, and they exist because you created what you pleased. All things, all of creation is to bring glory to God. All of creation. You and I, our primary purpose is to bring glory to God in our individual lives. Mary was given by him and created by him to bring glory to him. Can you imagine if that would be the first thought that would come into our head when something arises that could damage our relationship with our spouse? God, what do I do here? I want to bring glory and honor to you. What do I do? How do I respond? How do I react? I want to bring glory and honor to you. If it really would settle in our heart and mind that that's the primary reason for marriage, I think it would change the way we live and the way we act. We looked at all those things, and yet there is a pattern that is all too typical in lots of marriages. It's changing a little bit because so many people don't get married in the first place anymore. But a very typical pattern is this one. People fall in love, however you trip and fall into that. You fall in love, you get married. doesn't take long after you're married... And all the luster starts to come off a little bit. Trials and tests come. And then disillusionment sets in. This isn't what it's supposed to be. This isn't what I signed up for. It seemed way better when we talked about getting married than it does as we're trying to live it out. And once that disillusionment settles in, usually only one or two choices. One, and I have friends that are my age that got married when they were young, that are, are living out their marriages in total misery. They're just enduring. It may have started out, well, they're going to do this for the kids, and then it's just, well, it's easier, and uh, whatever. We'll just endure till the end. It's not God's design. Or they get a divorce. And this is the all-too-common pattern in our culture and in our society. Why is it so common? You know, the problem is not traditional marriage the way God set it up and ordained it to be. That is not the problem. It's not that the original traditional way won't work. The problem is usually one of two things. People are ignorant or they're apathetic. A simple difference between ignorance and apathy. Ignorance, I don't know. I didn't know. I don't know how. I've never learned. I've never been taught. No one showed me. Apathy, I don't care. It's not important enough. I don't care. And it's easy to slip in to apathy, especially when there is ignorance. And when I say ignorance, I'm not meaning it in a really derogatory way. There's lots of things that we're ignorant of. I I could make a long list of the things I am totally ignorant of. And one of them is still, at least partially, how to be a husband and a father 
and a Christian man of God. But we can learn, and we should continue to pursue the learning of that. Wives learning, husbands learning, as we're growing as children, I mean, we should continually be learning. But if there's not any knowledge, it's really easy to slip into apathy. I don't care. I just want this to go away. I want out. So I want to remind us, while my focus is going to be on the married relationship again today, it can apply to other relationships. And I'm going to be talking a lot about love today. And my focus on love is I'm referring to Christian love. And I'll elaborate on that in a little while. Love. How many times a day do you say the word love? I know so many people, every time they get off the phone, the last words aren't goodbye. They're, love ya. Well, well, maybe. I hope you do. What, what do you love? Make a list. I love sunshine after a rainy day. I love pizza with lots and lots and lots of cheese and meat. I love a car that's brand new and smells good when you get in it. I love it when my wife washes clothes and hangs the bedding on the line and I get in bed and it smells so nice and fresh. I love all those things. Oh, yeah, and I love my wife. Pizza, fresh bedding, my wife, all the same. I just love it. I love it all. The problem is we don't understand what love is in so many different ways. You know, in the Bible, and why is it so important? Listen to this. Listen to these things that the Bible could say, and I'm not going to go through all these scriptures just for the sake of time. But in Matthew 22:37, we talk about love the Lord your God. This is when some Sadducees were asking him, trying to trap Jesus. He said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What's the greatest law, greatest rule that we need to follow? Love the Lord your God. Hmm, there's love. Goes on in Matthew 19, it says, Love your neighbor as yourself, when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. And he comes up with, Well, who's my neighbor? Oh, ouch. Then it goes on and says, Love your enemies. In Matthew 5, and Jesus is preaching in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies. Holy smokes. Love the Lord, okay. Love my neighbor, maybe. My enemies, fat chance. Love. Your wife, Ephesians 5, love your wife. Colossians 3.19, love your wife. And I'm not letting the wives off the hook because you're supposed to love us the same way. But he gives a very specific instruction to us men. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now in the Greek, and I believe this is one of the reasons there's so much confusion with this love thing. In the, in the Greek, there's at least four words some would even say seven different words that all can be translated into the English language as love. So when we're reading in the Bible, what word is being translated love? And if we don't understand that, we apply it. I love pizza. Can that be accurate? Of course it can. Love you, brother. Love you, brother. Can I? Yeah, I sure can. I love the Lord. I love my wife. You know, in all of those instructions or mandates from God, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, love your enemies, love your wife, it is the same Greek word used in all those examples. I am supposed to love my enemies with the same passion that I love the Lord. Wow. 
I'm supposed to love my wife the same way that I love the Lord. And the same way that the Lord loves us. It's the same word used in each one. Love is really the power in a marriage relationship and in other relationships, in a marriage relationships that makes it successful in a fulfilling relationship. But the question is, what kind of love? I'm going to look at four different Greek words in just a few minutes, but first I want to take a look at the love that God has for us. Because when it talks about the love of God for us in the Bible, it's the same Greek word that we're supposed to love him with and love our neighbors with, love our wives with, love our spouses, love our enemies. So what does that kind of love look like? And I think most of us hopefully know and can come up with a picture in our mind of this kind of love by looking at the Lord. And it's interesting, and you could go so many places in the Bible to look at this, but I'm going to look at the first two chapters of Ephesians, just quick, brief. Because I like to look at that, when I see that in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Who's the church? All that have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. I'd say, well, what does that look like? What am I supposed to do if I love like that? What am I supposed to not do if I love like that? Well, you can go back into the Ephesians, the earlier chapters, before you get to chapter 5, and you can see just a few things. In, in chapter 1, and as I said, I'm not going to read all of these. Hopefully, if you're jotting some of these things down. But in chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Look at the way God demonstrates this love to us. It's powerful. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us, he's chosen us to be his holy people. It says that before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. As a child of God, that's how he sees you and me, isn't it? It's mind-boggling. He made us holy and blameless in his sight because of Christ and what Christ has done for us. And verse 4, it goes on, and really, to me, it's telling us he made us totally acceptable when we were not acceptable at all. He did it. No effort on our own whatsoever. Why did he do it? Because he loves us. He loves us. Verse 7. He redeemed us. He gave us redemption through Christ. Verse 7, he forgave all of our sins. Why? Because he loves us. He had to do this if he wanted relationship with us, and he wanted relationship with us so deeply that he sent Jesus to earth to die on a cross for us so that he could demonstrate and manifest that love to us and that love could live in each one of us. So then we could love others with the same love that Jesus has for us. It's mind-boggling if you truly meditate on this and get past the intellectual discussion and think about this is what sacrificial God love looks like. He did all these things. Verse 13, he sealed us for eternity with his Holy Spirit, pouring out his love upon us. 
And he needed to do this because, as we see in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in our sin. If he would have left us that way, we would have spent however long we lived on this earth trying to satisfy the flesh. We would have lived out a life with no future of hope if he hadn't done this. He loved us so much that he saved us and rescued us from that. A hopeless life. It's surprising how many unbelievers that I talk to when they come to me and when I say these simple words, there is hope. They look at me like, what planet did you come from? Or I hear these words, do you really believe there's hope for me? And the answer is yes. We have a God of hope, the God who gives us hope because of what he's done for us out of love for us. All the kind of love that he expects us to be able to demonstrate to our spouses, to our neighbors, to our enemies, and of course, back to him. He has reached out to us, and I believe, longing in the Heavenly Father's heart that we would respond to his unconditional love and recycle it right back to him. That's his goal. That's his heart. That's his desire. He can't help but love us, and he wants us to love him in the same way. And then he says, oh, yes, love your neighbor that way. Love your spouse that way. Love your enemy that way. How can we do it? Only, I believe, only by being a Christian. Otherwise, that love does not reside in us, that type of love, the love that we're supposed to demonstrate. God forgave us when he did not have to. He reached out to us way before we thought of reaching out to him. He initiated it and gave us the grace to respond to him. He determined to love us even if we didn't deserve it because he is love. That's who he is. And he will do anything in his power to try to try to seduce sounds bad. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to seduce us into loving him back. He'll do anything in his power to do that except except he'll never force you to. Because if you were forced to love somebody, it's not really love. He will give all of the love that he is, make available to us, reaching out to us, wooing us by his Holy Spirit. But he won't make you receive it. He won't force us to receive it. A relationship based on love, it's not on an exercise of power. It's the influence of love. In our relationships with people, especially relationships with our spouses, if we think we can force them to love us, if we think we can exercise some sort of power over them to make them love us, we're wrong. The only way to influence this kind of love that we're talking about is to love them with it. And God will change their heart. When you think about God's love as the model we're looking at here, just think salvation grace, redemption, forgiveness, a new life, 
All of these are free gifts, love gifts by God. Love gifts. I read an article this week, and I love the phrase, but I decided not to use it. But I'm going to share it anyway. The phrase was, God makes love to us. But not the way we think when we hear that phrase. This is how he makes love to us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He gives us a new life in Christ. We're a new creature. He is making love to us in that way, and he wants us to return that same love. He's freely given it to us, and he continues to do so in the hope that we will return it to him. And he will continue to give it to us. In Romans 8, 35, and then verses 37 through 39, I just want to read these. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you think and you believe the lie that God doesn't love you, you're wrong. There is nothing in all of creation that can stop him from loving you. That should give us such hope, such exhilaration, such freedom to know that nothing, those lies, I did this, he can't love me, that's baloney. These people have said this about me and it's true. God, No way God could love me. That's a lie. I am so filled with guilt and shame, I don't deserve to be loved. You're right, but you're wrong. You don't deserve it, but you can't stop it. He loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And this is the type of love that he tells us to demonstrate for others. And I think it's helpful for me anyway to look at these different Greek words that are all translated love in our Bible. I think one of the reasons we have so little understanding about it is we get confused because we just don't know. Some of you in here have heard me ask you this question, or maybe not even ask it as a question. I state this as a fact. Love is a choice. I'd ask how many of you hate it when I say that, but I don't want to know. Love is a choice. And usually I get some sort of response back when I say that. Is love really a choice? I don't think so. And my answer is, yes, it's really a choice, but it depends on what type of love you're talking about and which one of those Greek words was translated love in your scriptures. So I'm going to just touch on these four different words first. Eros, love. Translated love. This is erotic love. This is what we would call that sexual attraction. It's a sexual love. It's a love of passion. It can almost become obsessive and all-consuming. It can become lust very easily if it goes in the wrong direction. It becomes very, very bad when it's all about satisfying my wants, my needs, my lust. Does it have any place in a marriage? Yes, it can when this eros type of love is something that the desire is to please our spouse and celebrate the intimacy that only a married couple can have. So that kind of attraction, this eros type of love, has a place. But 
It's conditional. Because really the basic meaning behind this type of love, eros love, is a self-satisfaction. Gratifying self. If it gives, it's usually giving for primarily one reason, to get. Eros love. Is this one a choice? Not all the time. Not at all. I mean, most all of us can acknowledge there is this kind of attraction and hopefully it's for our spouses if we're married and it's there and it's real. The problem with Eros love or one of the problems with Eros love that that thing, that intangible thing that draws us to that other person in the relationship with this kind of Eros love, if that thing is removed... We're out of here. It was conditional on whatever that thing was. And if it's gone, goodbye. This kind of love looks for what it can receive, not what it can give. So it's very, very conditional type of love. This type of love, this Greek word, is not in the New Testament. So when the New Testament is talking about love, it's not this kind of love. It's not there. Second type of love is the Greek word storgi. And this kind of love kind of has its origin in just in our, our, in our nature. It's kind of a natural affection or a, a natural obligation to love. It's a natural movement within us towards, um, can it be towards our spouse? Absolutely. Um, can it be towards your favorite pet? Absolutely. I mean, I don't understand it, but you can love your dog or love your cat that way with storgy love. There's just something about that thing, whatever it is, that just causes you to storgy love it in that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, I love you just for who you are. That's all. Not by what you achieve. But in a negative sense, it can also be very, very negative. It says, I love you because you enhance my worth. You make me feel good or you make me look good. A storgy kind of love. Again, it can be very conditional. I'm going to just pick on an animal instead of a spouse or a relationship, but that dog bites me one more time, it's gone. I don't storgy it anymore. She does that one more time, she's gone. Conditional kind of love. This word is used in the Bible. This kind of love that, that is kind of a natural thing, but still very, very conditional. Third type of love, and you're probably more familiar with maybe this word is phileo, a phileo love. One of the places we see it in Scripture is in uh, John, I believe it's chapter, see if I can find it here quick, 21. Remember the discussion between Peter and Jesus after Jesus had been crucified, etc.? Peter had denied him three times, and they're back together, and Jesus says to him, do you love me? And Peter goes, well, yes, Lord, of course I love you. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, I love you. 
And he's telling him, go feed my sheep, do your thing. And then a third time he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And by this time, Peter's like, geez, Lord, I love you. Only the third time, Jesus used the same Greek word that Peter was using in response. The first two times, Jesus was using the next type of love we'll talk about, agape love. And Peter was saying, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And finally, Jesus said, Peter, do you phileo me? And he goes, yes, Lord, I phileo you. There was a communication going on that we miss completely if we don't understand those words. Jesus was asking something different of Peter. And Peter was saying, yes, Lord, I love you like a brother. Phileo love is a companionship type of love, a brotherly love. It speaks of affection, fondness, liking someone. It's better than the the Eros love because it involves a giving and a getting. It's more about our happiness instead of just my happiness. You know, this would be that type of friendship we see between brothers and sisters in Christ who are good friends. This type of love can be present along with, we hope, the fourth love we'll talk about. But it's a, a much higher level of love than the eros or the storgi kind of love, this phileo love. It, it, it responds. It's the kind of love that when you think about developing a friendship where there, there, there's this kind of love, there's, we respond to kindness when someone other treats us good. When they love us and they do something and we so appreciate it, we love them. We phileo them type of love. It comes forth out of my heart, pulled out of our heart by the qualities of another person. And once again, even though it is a higher level of love in these levels or kinds of love we're talking about, it still falls short because it still can be very conditional. I love this person. They've treated me so well. They're always kind to me. They're always so friendly. They're so generous with me. I phileo them. That jerk, I can't believe he betrayed me. I can't believe he was one of my best friends and he's he's totally betrayed me. He's turned against me. He's telling lies about me. I don't phileo him anymore. Conditional type of love. None of these first three kinds of love are the kinds of love that God loves us with. None of these kinds of love are the kinds of love we're supposed to love our spouses with, our neighbors with, our enemies with, or the Lord with. And it's certainly not the kind of love when Jesus is say, or Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he says to them, husbands, love your wives. The word there is the agape, or agapeo. There's two different words that are almost exactly the same. If you use a Strong's Concordance, there are numbers 25 and 26. Some of you go, what is that? But... If you use it in accordance in your studies, you'll see these two words. The agape love. It's one that comes out of our heart because whatever it is that's the, is, is precious in our sight. Because God says it's precious in our sight. Are your enemies precious in your sight? Yes, in the sense that you should agape them. You may never phileo them. You may never love them like a, like a brother. They may never be your friend, but I am called to agape love them. 
Agape love is the unconditional love. This is the love that is an act of our will. This is our love that is a choice. We choose to love in an agape relationship. It doesn't come naturally. Can you see how that wouldn't come naturally? This agape love, I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what. I don't care what you do to me, I love you. I don't care how many times you do it to me, I love you. There's nothing you can do that can make me not agape you. Nothing. I'm not going to leave you, I'm not going to forsake you, ever, because there's nothing you can do that would cause me to not agape you. Because the love, the agape love of God is in me. And he has told me to love you in the same way. And he makes it possible because his love flows in us and through us. Otherwise, it's impossible. Our flesh would never love that way. It doesn't matter how unkind. It doesn't matter how unlovable. It doesn't matter how unworthy we think they are. You and I are called as Christians to agape love them. That's the kind of love that we read about in the New Testament. That word agape is used over 320 times in the New Testament when love is being talked about. This is the kind of love that I believe only a Christian can demonstrate or live out because it's not found in us, in our own strength, our own makeup. It's found in us because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. And it's a love that flows through the Holy Spirit to us, out of us, when we make a choice to love that way. So when he is telling us to agape, when he's telling us, men, husbands, agape, your wives, as Christ, agape, the church, no matter what, no matter what. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to close with this verse. It's a verse I'm pretty sure every single one of you in here has heard. And if I was going to read it, and I won't because it'd get clumsy, but you could insert the word agape every time you see the word love because that's the Greek word used. We hear it at lots and lots of marriages, weddings. A love is patient. Agape is patient. Love is kind. Every single one of these require an act of our will. Every single one. Love is kind. It does not envy It does not boast. What doesn't? Agape does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no records of wrongs. That's agape love. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and this kind of love, agape, never fails. This is the kind of love that God has for us. This is the kind of love that Christ demonstrated to us, and this is the kind of love that he tells us. You're my children. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, 
And I want you to agape your neighbors. I want you to agape your enemies. I want you to agape me. And I want you to agape your spouses. Husbands, agape your wives as Christ loved the church. If we can get a better understanding, I believe, of what this kind of love looks like, knowing that it's the same love that God loves us with, it's a love that cannot be broken without an act of our will. Let's close in prayer. Father, I am so thankful that you love me this way, that you love all your sons and daughters this way. God, that you've demonstrated that love through Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, that he took the penalty for our sins. I thank you, God, that that kind of love is available to us. I thank you, Lord, that you gave the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us, and the Holy Spirit is love because the Holy Spirit is God, that that love resides in each one of us, Father. I pray that you would help us and give us the grace to get our flesh out of the way that that love can be released through us that unselfish, unconditional love to those around us. Father, for that love is what will break down the hardest of hearts. It's that kind of love that will draw people to Jesus. Father, I praise you and thank you that it's your desire for each one of us to love in that way. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see and then remove the obstacles that prevent us from receiving your love in this way. God, we know there is an enemy who does not want us to receive your love. There's an enemy that wants us to believe the lies that somehow or enough we don't deserve it or we're not good enough, we're unworthy. God, I pray that you would just break the power of those lies in each one of our lives in the name of Jesus, that we would know and understand and believe by faith that your love for us is unconditional, that your children can live in the freedom of that kind of love. And I pray we'd be able to demonstrate that love in the relationships that we have, especially in our homes with our families, our wives, and our children. God, and I pray this so that your purpose for our marriages could be fulfilled in bringing you glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.